Hi, I'm Ingo from Roast Rebels and this video is a Q&A session on coffee roasting that we've had with Morten Münchow from Coffee Mind. Morten is one of those people within the coffee world whose opinion I value the most. He has been roasting coffee himself since many years. He has been teaching about coffee, about coffee roasting. He has developed SCA education programs. And what's particular about him, he's not taking anything for granted. He really wants to know and understand the things he's teaching about. He's a scientist, so he's taking a scientific approach to understand things. But at the same time, he is able to translate that into easily understandable guidelines and really praxis-oriented teachings that will help you directly to improve your coffee roasting. Ahead of this Q&A session, we've had about a 30-minute presentation by Morton, where he summed up the most important things about coffee roasting and theories about coffee roasting. So if you're interested in his teaching, either go to his website Coffee Mind and have a look at the various courses he's offering or go to our website Roast Travels and look in the webinar session. You might find another webinar upcoming with him where you then can tune in and directly register in order not to miss that part of his teachings as well. But now I would say let's start and directly tune into the Q&A session. So we can start into the Q&A session. And uh, the first one I had um, from Johannes is when it comes to sensory analysis, an analysis for filter coffee, do you use the classical cupping methods or would you recommend to brew it then really in these methods that it's going to be brewed later afterwards? And uh, in addition to that, also how much time or aging would you recommend between roasting and sensory analysis? Yeah, so basically, I'll go back to this slide, right? You have to do both. First, you need to map out how are the uh, how how does the coffee taste from a laboratory perspective? How does what you the coffee you've selected and the roast you've done? How does it actually taste? And if you've done some experiments, you want to know how did how, what is the actual taste difference? That that's the laboratory, right? Next question is, how uh, will this work for my customers? And then this is where, okay, how long time does it take from I roast it until they even get it? How do they brew it? So you need to, that's it, but that's a separate question, right? So, so the, the short answer is you need to do both. Uh, because otherwise, if you just send it to the customers and do what they, or brew it like they do, you, you don't get a, such a clear picture of what's actually going on. So that's why you would need to start with a lab question, which is just a normal copying, to be honest, if you trust your own uh, skills. So it's mo not more laboratory than that. You don't need all these fancy clothes and stuff they have here. It's just copying cups, right? But you need to trust your own evaluation. And the next step is then to put your, yourself in the customer's shoes and then see uh, what's happening. Perfect. Thanks a lot. I have a bit of a longer question from Bruno, and he's um, disagreeing on chemistry. He says, uh, fully disagree that chemistry might not be relevant, as you mentioned before. Taste will always directly correlate with the compounds formed in the roasting process. Tasting the roast with several people as measurement is, of course, a go-to method to generate taste data. But he wonders if there is a way to get even more objective data out of a roast. So in his opinion, the sulfur-containing compounds are key to the taste of coffee. 
Um, it is no wonder that as 200 plus of these are generated during the roast and controlling temperature and time will only bring us far. Don't get me wrong, uh, he says, this is the masterful art of roasting, which he seeks to learn as well. But he thinks um, we also need to understand that the chemistry of the Maya reaction here, he may be biased, of course, because he's a scientific, has a scientific background. Um, yeah, what's your opinion on this? Well, um, I love chemistry. Uh, and when we do chemical, when we do scientific projects, my favorite research design is to have uh, uh, chemical analysis, laboratory sensory analysis, and consumer science. Because if you don't have the chemical data, you cannot explain the sensory data. But if you don't have the sensory data, you cannot evaluate the relevance of the, the chemical differences that you've measured. So you need the chemical data to explain the sensory data. But if you don't have the consumer data, you don't know what is the consumer relevance of you've done. So I completely agree with Bruno that, this, and as you can see, this is how we do research. So several of our scientific publications are exactly doing all of these three things, because if you don't have any of these three, you are missing something. So I do agree, but how many of you have a GCMS in your roastery? That's one question. I'm pretty sure it's none. The next question is, even if you had, how would you use it to make decisions? So that, that's basically my questions. So because uh, making decisions is a sensory act in a, in a roastery context, because you, I, this is not the perfect laboratory, right? This is the perfect roastery. So, and, and this is my whole point, actually. The whole point of this framework that I've shown you here is that we have tried to systematically take each competency pillar and ask ourselves, how can we take what's relevant here and avoid the rabbit hole? So you, everybody knows this, the, 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 uh, the rule of diminishing returns, right? How much should you go in depth in something uh, without uh, getting lost in it? It's also called as the Pareto, uh, the Pareto principles that 20% of the input parameters is responsible for 80% of the outcome. So there's so much common sense in not overdoing it, right? And it seems like in coffee, everybody overdoes it so much that everybody are confused and can't make any decisions. So we've been trying to look at every competency pillar. What do you need to know in each step in order not to overdo it so that you are not clocked for decisions? And this is, this is my point that chemistry, however much I love it, I really love organic chemistry. I love science. It's not that I don't like it. I'm just saying that it might be a rabbit hole if for decisions if you're spending too much time on it. And how things taste is what's relevant for your customers. So this is where you need to spend 80% of your attention to talk in Pareto. So, so that's actually why I'm kind of a bit reluctant to speak too much chemistry because that would just make, yeah, uh, yeah. I'm just careful about only talking about things that where you can de make decisions, relevant decisions for your business based on. Thanks a lot for that. I have a question from Frank. He's asking, what's your approach on sample roasting? That's great. Yeah, that's a great question again, because this is again why I don't like standards. So in the SCA standard, roast is to 63. 
why would I roast it to 63? Let's say I want to do a really light Scandinavian roast and I'm looking for green coffee for that purpose. Why would I roast it on my sample roaster to 63? It, it just doesn't, so I would always, and that's where in this framework, everything derives its relevance from the right side here, right? So who am I trying to impress here? Again, you remember what I said, even for home roasters, is it my mother-in-law on Sunday or is it my hipster friend uh, for the brunch Saturday morning? So that, that there's always a purpose what, we, what you're doing and I would adapt the uh, sample roasting process accordingly. So if I'm looking for five different Kenyas for my light roast, I would roast them light also in sample roasting. And then I would have some kind of standard um, uh, kind of roast profile. And this is also where the, the bullet, you can just waste one kilo per experiment um, uh, and, and, and do some uh, time uh, speed um, uh, as well. But color is really the main thing. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind not worrying too much about time if the purpose is just to find the optimum Kenya between five candidates. I would just roast them light, for example, in a 200 uh, gram uh, sample roast on the uh, bullet without worrying too much about the timing. As long as I need the color, I'll get a picture of how it tastes and then which which uh, of these candidates to, to select. So the short answer is I would adapt my sample roast profile to the purpose of the product I'm developing and not worry about standards. Would you even go so far if, for example, I love Italian espresso to roast samples um, into the beginning of second crack? Sure. If that's the purpose of the product I'm developing, that gives me the best picture of the, of the uh, coffee at the relevant roast color that I'm, I'm aiming for. Interesting. Great. Um, and um, so next question is um, one that you're going to love. What do you think about flicks and crashes around the first crack? I think this is an example of, of you being afraid of a very small spider just because you're looking through it through a microscope. According to the data we have, I, unless there's something I've missed completely about the whole physics and chemistry around first crack, I, I, I just don't see how you can expect a big difference from a small course. That's another thing. If you listen to my podcast, I've, I've listed up eight features of a good theory. And, a, uh, and one of them is to get some sense of proportion, right? So thinking about, again, standing with the roaster, you, you know nothing, right? You wouldn't expect a huge difference from a minor thing, right? So, so that, that's, that's my approach. Uh, unless there's something I've missed about, basically what I think is it's going on is explained by the uh, ideal gas law, where you have, if you have, uh, something that is compressed uh, and all, all of a sudden it gets more volume because now it, the steam is, is escaping. So that's compressed gas. And if it gets more volume, the temperature drops. So it's an artifact. It's not, I don't know even how the beans are behaving. Uh, so that's, it's just an artifact uh, reading. Um, and there's no reason to kind of freak out just because that's happening a small thing. It's really, and that this is where the, you can see the, you can see it on the curve as a small thing. So if it's a small thing on the curve, it's probably also a small thing on, uh, <laughs> from a sensory perspective. And if you kind of remember these extreme differences that people just flat out fail to distinguish if color is kept the same. And I, I suspect a lot of these theories has been developed because if you focus on one thing and not on color, 
you might get a lot of experiments done on drum speed, for example, doing a lot of drum speed experiments and you go copy it. I prefer that one. Yeah, but that was lighter than the other one, but you just didn't measure color because you didn't think about it. So that's that's the thing about research design. That's the everything else equal principle. If you're doing an experiment, you can only, it's important that you're keeping all other factors the same than the one that you're experimenting with. And I think that's a lot about this uh, flick and crash where it's not specific. Is it for short development time? Is it for long development time? Is it, is it, it it's not specific what else is kept equal. And it's formulated in, in concept that is far from the first principles of the system. So it's just, I think it's a, just a bit chasing unicorns. And it's not even specific what it, you know, also in a theory, it needs to be specific. What does it predict? And if it predicts something, it needs to be specific. What descriptors are either going up or down? So if a theory doesn't predict anything, it can be hiding for years because it's never proven to be wrong, right? Doesn't make a difference in the first place. People do it. And they never exposed the theory of being wrong because it didn't predict anything in the first place. It's it's nicer. Well, nicer for whom? What is what is going up, down? Give you some predictions here. If, if, if you're not predicting anything with a theory, it's not useful. And it can hide in the shadows of not being disproven because it didn't make a difference in the first place. Perfect, thanks a lot. Um, next question is on astringency. That's a great one. Um, where is it coming from and how can you deal with it? Oh, now I have to get to, to kind of agree with Bruno. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But again, well, because here, here uh, chemistry would be interesting to look at. And to be honest, I don't know. I have seen in our research that, that astringency does correlate with both uh, time to first crack and development time. So astringency is increased if you increase the development time, and it also is increased if you increase time to first crack. Um, so astringency is caused by uh, our saliva uh, enzyme, enzyme. So if you start to eat something already in your mouth, things are broken down by enzymes. So that's big proteins. And these will, if, if there's also tannins in wine, I, I actually, I, I don't remember what it is in coffee, but the, the point is these uh, enzymes are, are collapsing and then they are uh, starting to be, become small and granular so that you can actually feel it in your mouth. Um, uh, so that's a mouthfeel astringency. So I, I, I don't know what uh, molecule is causing it in coffee, but I can tell you that it is increased with uh, both development time and uh, time to first crack. So increased growth time in general. Interesting. Next one um, is also very interesting. Um, he or she is planning to open an own roastery. And um, the question is, when it comes to training, is it better to start with sensory skills or with roasting skills? Both. It's like if you, if you need to learn how to run, which leg should you start with? <laughs> And that's actually why in, uh, Ida and I, we've been running a bit separate for some years now with, with our SCA system, right? So you could do sensory, you could do roasting. And we kind of, we, we did the whole uh, SCA from 2013 to 18, and then it merged and it became too bureaucratic. And um, science is not uh, about de democracy, it's actually about the truth. So we kind of, we, we stopped. So the framework I showed you, 
we are we created an integrated model on how sensory and controlling the roaster is working together. So for us, it's it's we're not seeing it as separate now. So I would say um, uh, start with both. And this is this is also why the the offer that I've given you at this webinar is a combined. It's it's both the sensory and the roasting because. We are not really interested in, in having customers who does who are not interested in the roasting. Then you can go uh, elsewhere, right? So we are interested in having customers who see the point of integrating both at the same time, because otherwise you are not you are you 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 are able to drive your car, but you have no compass, so you don't know where to go. So the sensory is your compass. So I wouldn't wait with any of them. I would just start with both at the same time. Perfect. And the next next question, um, you had it maybe a bit in your pyramid, but what are the most important rules for a new coffee roaster? I would say develop your competences rather than hoping for getting uh, valuable knowledge from some roast curve or some fancy sensory descriptors. So focus on your competences to gain confidence. That's the first thing. Um, and the next thing is just um, work. Think of the most important factors for product development is green coffee selection and roast degree. Then you've already kind of covered most of what's relevant. And then you, of course you can play around with the profile. I'm not saying it's nothing, but people are just hiding in their basement because of the drum speed experiments and stuff like that. And, and this is where if you really know what you're doing from a sensor perspective, all the uncertainty kind of disappears. Okay, perfect. And Mohammed is asking, what is the key to consistency? Uh, I'm trying to. This is the key to consistency. Keeping the keeping focus on the parameters that matters most. So if you measure color and worry about the development time, you're locking in 95% of the possible variation. And if you're even wondering about total roast time, unless there's something weird happening to your greens, this will taste the same. Perfect. And next question, is the assumption correct? Same beans, same end temperature, similar roast profiles um, leads to same color? Yes, <laughs> uh, I would. Uh, if it's if you have control over your possible confounders in your in your roaster, so this is for example, if you if you all of the machines I have here, the first roast is just a bit different than the others, just a bit, not a lot, but a bit. And so most often I would just advise people to throw in the the house blend as the first thing, or yeah, um, I've noticed that on most roasters, the first roast will show you an artificial, just two to, two to three degrees lower bean temperature than the rest of the day. So you can also compensate by, so mat basically matching color by eye and not only trusting the end bean temperature all the time. You can do that for most of the day if you have an okay in-between batch uh, uh, roast protocol, but the first roast is is, uh, is, is different. and this. The, the color palette uh, that, that you see here um, is, is uh, that, that's the one that you will also get a, a, a 3D uh, print file of. It's, it's really simple. Just putting, putting your, your reference in the middle 
uh, where there's a small inner plate. And then you can put, when you roast, you can put with your sample spoon, you can take small amounts and put them in the rim of the plate. And then it's easy to make the right decision with, if you have the correct color in the middle, it's easier to uh, com uh, compare a big amount to a big amount, a big amount in the middle with the reference and then the uh, bigger amount that you're taking out with a sample spoon. And then even the first roast of the day, if you have a, a roast from yesterday, you can nail the color, even though the bean temperature shows something a bit different on the first roast than the rest of the day. I think that's the best kind of answer I can give. Awesome, that's a great one, especially um, also for me or for us as a home roasters, because these um, color measuring uh, machines are quite expensive. So in order to get consistency, you say you could take a plate like the one you have, or you can make one your own, where you have a sample and then you um, just compare it to the sample that you have in order to get consistency. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and we are working with, I mean, when we do research, it's plus minus one actron. And this color plate is definitely very helpful because you have a big amount that you compare to a big amount and you make much better decisions then. And one question on color. Do you measure only the surface or do you grind them? And is the color changing after a certain amount of time? Like for example, with the degassing? Yeah, so I always only measure ground because for me, the color is an indicator of the total, uh, the total energy accumulation of the beans, which correlates with the total uh, amount of chemical transformation. That's what I want to know. And the bean surface, that I mean, that, that is just a consequence of how fast you roast. So I have that information already. So if I roast faster, I already know that the surface is darker than the center. And if I roast slower, I already know that there's a less of a difference. So it doesn't give me extra information. Uh, the only situation where I would use uh, surface uh, reading would be if I'm trying to find out if a competitor, well, for a client, for example, if their competitor is roasting fast or slow, then I, we, can, we can compare the surface to the center. And I also know that Rob Hoos and uh, Michael de Renoir, two of my friends, they, they, uh, went, they, they are working for Loring. So they often are tasked with matching profiles from a probat to a Loring. And they also use uh, surface and center differences to kind of get some extra information on how to do it. So I'm not saying it can't be done, but the education that I do is more experiments on the same uh, roaster with the same beans. And then it doesn't give you extra information because you know if it's faster, it's a bigger color difference. So I, I always only measure ground, but of course, looking at it, using the color plate, you, you look at the surface. And here you have to be ready if you want to make some faster roasts and nail the color, you have to be ready to accept that they are slightly darker on the surface in order to match the slower ones when you grind it. But that's that's a bit of a handcraft. Mm. Perfect. So next question is then a specific one on anaerobic naturals. Maybe you can also make a more general information about it. But when it comes to time of the first crack, um, things are moving very fast. So how can we manage a coffee like an anaerobic natural um, not to take off that fast after first crack? Use a, a, slower, a, a lower uh, flame size. So let's say that, that you find 
with the standard roast of, of this is a washed coffee. If you find that if you use the standard roast and you can see that it really takes off here, you could just go to four rather than five and see if that solves the problem. Mm. And this should be done before first, Craig. It depends on the machine and the, the 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 roast. And this is where this is where I would really like people to do this exercise because then it's as simple as playing Angry Birds to make decisions. It's just to kind of oh if it go if it went too high, next time I'll just go a bit lower with the rubber band uh, on the bird. Right? It's it's really simple like this. Hmm. Next question then is on your workshops. Um, he asks, do I need to do the seven hour virtual class before passing by Copenhagen for the live in-house class? No, 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 no. You, uh, if, you, if you're going to the, uh, any of our in uh, classes here in Copenhagen, you can just, uh, for the intermediate, you can just show up even without having done anything before. Uh, for the professional, you need to pass the intermediate three months before attending the professional. Um, so that that's the only constraint. Otherwise, we'll we'll start from scratch anyway, because people, as I say, we start with brainwashing people first, and then building people up using very simple concepts. So so it doesn't matter. The less you've learned, the better. <laughs> Next question is um, in regards to the diversity competency and product development. How far? Would you differentiate the different rose profiles in regards to color and development time? Great question. And my answer is, it depends on what you want to do. And, and this is where I really, and so Ida and I, we're working on a consumer, a really simple consumer uh, uh, kind of setup because it, it's really simple, right? So let's take the color question. Let's say you have a cafe and they are pretty happy with what you do and you are roasting, let's say, to Actron 65. Um, this, I'm just making it very simple. So what I would do, I would create, let's say you're roasting to Actron 65 and then, then I would create five different roasts uh, starting from 65, 75, 85, uh, 95, uh, 105, for example. And then I would, I would just have a free coffee today, right? Five thermal pots with five different roast degrees. Get a small sample of each. You, you can get a cup uh, of coffee of the one that you prefer. So you can see it's, it's consumer science, but it's really simple, right? It's, it, it, and it gives you very valuable information. Let's say that you are surprised that there's a big community who likes 105. You didn't know, right? Because you've just been doing what you're doing or you will find out that, okay, some people are okay with 75 uh, and there are a few who prefer 80, 85, but there was nobody above that. Then, because then you know, right? If you know your customers specifically by having exposed them to different products, and this is where the bullet is absolutely amazing because you can very easily do very precise experiments and, and get some consumer feedback uh, because the consumer feedback would tell you. So that's also what, when, when people ask me, should, so I was a bit worried that also the whole anaerobic, uh, that question, 
what curve is best for naturals or anaerobic? It's just, no, 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 no. I, I don't know what you want with this. So tell me who do you want to satisfy, right? So in a sense, I cannot tell you anything about what curve would be best. And I cannot tell you what your customers want. That's why I want to teach you the competences to make up your own mind when you taste something and have skills to map customer preferences in a very simple setup. Because once you master sensory evaluation yourself and customer feedback, you actually never need to ask me about anything anymore. So I'm trying to kind of set you free from, from, from consultancy, <laughs> which is a bit of a paradox, but, but that's really our vision to make people make their own decisions by giving you skills rather than recommendations. Um, did, that, did that answer the question? <laughs> I hope so. Otherwise, Stefan, um, you can ask a follow-up question on it. Um, then the next one is um, Jeff, who has built his own fluid bed roaster. And he says the time between the beginning and the end of first crack is about 1.5 minutes. He asks, is this normal? And when does the development start? Um, does it start after 1.5 minutes or does it start when the first of the beans are cracking? Uh, so, well, it sounds like your system is pretty much full speed all the time because that's a very, very short time from first crack to second crack. And if you have such a short time, then first and second crack just go into each other. Then there's no um, there's 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 no pause between first and second crack. So, if I were you, I would build in some kind of heat modulator so that you could slow it down because that. That's too far. You can see my standard roast is is uh, is uh, three minute development time to midway between first and second crack, not to second crack, right? So, if I did a second crack roast, I would probably have a bit steeper curve in the end, and I would probably never go beyond four minutes development time. But I would go to four minute development times. Otherwise, it's it's just burned in the surface. And then Frank asked, how do you select green beans for blends? Is the density a criteria? And if yes, um, should they have similar density when putting different beans in a blend? So, um, yeah. So the short technical answer is that for pre-blending, pre because I assume that you're talking about pre-blending when you ask this question, I would say it's a good idea to look for beans with a pretty similar size, density, and of course, moisture uh, level. That said, um, again, this is a technical question to a sensory, what should be a sensory answer, right? Because I would say um, it depends, right? For example, if you, if you are making a pre-blend or if you're blending for somebody, for a house blend or something like that, where people add milk, well, as long as you don't use kind of pea berry or robusta, some, some beans that are very different, as long as it's kind of screen 16, 18, the differences might not be relevant. Uh, I mean, it, it doesn't really matter that much because people are adding milk anyway. And even if they don't add milk, it's probably so dark that they just expect pretty dark coffee, right? But if you're if you're roasting for really discerning customers, then you might even choose to post blend, but only if they can taste the difference and if they care about the story. 
because sometimes people just don't care about the story and they can't taste the difference. So that's the whole point about quality control, that you need to be, again, what's the purpose, right? Who are your customers? So again, I'm trying to always remind you about the context of what you're doing without, so don't look for these technical answers without asking yourself, what's my purpose? And the purpose is given by my context and my context is who do I want to satisfy, even if that's yourself. Great one, because this is a discussion we often have within the home roasting scene, probably also within the roasting scene about pre-blending and post-blending. So I understood you correctly. You say um, try pre-blending and only do post-blending when you realize the consumer or in the cup, you can then really taste a remarkable difference. Exactly. Yeah, that's just, as another good example of this siloed thinking of uh, what's the right and wrong here, right? Is it right or wrong to post a pre-blend? Where something, no, no, you need to post-blend so you can optimize each, each your coffee, which is true and an extra cost. And only if the extra cost is something your customers want to pay, pay and care about, you should do it. If they don't, you shouldn't, right? So this is where you need to remi remind yourself always of the purpose context of what you're doing and not just take these right and wrongs of each silo. Yeah. Perfect. And then uh, there is a question, is uh, the bullet profile that you had, the standard profile, is it available in the roast world? Yeah, yeah. I, everything I do on the bullet is, uh, is, is there. So you can just go and look for the Coffee Mind Standard Roast. Yeah. Um, so we look for user Coffee Mind and then we are going to find them in. Yeah. Oh, perfect. Um, then um, the so far last question that I see in the Q&A module is, uh, do you have any recommendation on how to set up a hands-on consumer preference study like you mentioned, which is the number, minimum number of participants um, that we need to for it to be statistically relevant? Yeah. That, that's a good question. So um, as uh, you can see here, the, the first study I would do would be, uh, oh yeah, a color, right? I would, because that's the most, that's where I get most information first. So that could be to do, let's say four different roast degrees. And uh, if it's a filter product, uh, you could just uh, brew them in four thermopods, show up, give them a small sample, and you and, and tell them that they can have a full cup of the one they prefer. It's important uh, to get people, because this is something with commitment. If they go away with the cup they prefer, that, that's from behavioral economics. I've, I've learned that you, you have to, that they need to go away with something before it's the true uh, kind of value. Um, and then you can just measure which one is preferred. And it's a good idea to just make uh, some notes. This is what we did when we did this study here. We just had some uh, age, uh, genders and age ranges and very few demo, uh, demographic things because people don't want to fill out anything. So it's something that you should quickly, just every, every time somebody says something or gives you some information, you should quickly be able to tick this off yourself uh, or in, in Google Analytics or something free. Uh, uh, software for data collection uh, so that you can also get some demographic. Um, you could also ask them some questions. What do you work? Where do you live? Is, you know, is it the local farmer who comes in or is it the local IT consultant or whatever? 
So you get a picture of who prefers what uh, age and stuff like that. Um, so that, but this is really simple, right? Minimum numbers of participants for statistical relevance. As a rule of thumb at uh, the university, consumer studies should be 100. Most often you end up with 70 and still get some good data. So perhaps, perhaps you would, 50 would be enough, uh, enough for you. Perhaps the more the better. So aim for 100. And if you get 50, see if you can get some, uh, some trends. And the setup that you had here with this um, consumer testing was just, you had two coffees, you gave it to people and they had to say which one they prefer. How did it work? Yeah, this is actually data collection for the work that is published in British Food Journal called Coffee, uh, High Quality Doesn't Sell Itself. Um, so it's, it's, it's a quite a long story. Um, I, see, I can see if I can do it fast. They were told that they can win a cup of coffee. And uh, then they were served a high quality and a low quality. And then uh, they were told, which one do you, would you prefer to win? So that, that, that's, the, that's their true uh, preference. They didn't know anything. Which one do we, would you prefer to win? So that's an incentive to, to come up with good data because there's something at stake here, right? You want to get the cup you prefer, right? right? And then they could win the cup by answering the next question correct. So that's also an incentive to answer the next question correct. And the next question was, which one do you think is the most expensive? Not highest quality because consumers know nothing about quality. So that's the that so that's Toke that you can see the guy with the cap. He's a behavioral economics uh, uh, professor, and um, so this was a study. And then in our data we could see that fifty percent of the people who preferred the low quality pointed out the higher quality as the most most expensive. So fifty percent of the people who said, "I know that's the most expensive, but give me that one." So that was a research project, and this is much more advanced than, than I asked you to do. But this was uh, you can you can uh, you can see the um, um, that that's one of our scientific articles in the collection. That's a really nice setup. Yeah, so have, it's really uh, simple, have, right? Yeah, and um, it asks smart questions. So we have about three more minutes, three more questions. So um, I'm going to shoot the next questions. Um, would you recommend to use Robusta as a single origin roast and which roast profile would you choose? Time to first crack and second crack. That's again, uh, I would, um, uh, that depends on the customers you're trying to address. I've done single origin in, in the Ivory Coast recently, um, uh, uh, single origin Robusta. Uh, but again, you need to, what's the purpose? and uh, do your own experiments and uh, trust your own skills. That, that, because if I gave you a curve, there's so many things I don't know about a lot of things. So, but you know the context and if you have the competences, you can take your, uh, the decisions. Perfect. Next question goes a bit in a similar direction. To start a roastery, which five bean types would you recommend to have on stock and to blend? So for example, Brazil, Colombia, washed or dry processed. Again, I would, what's your, what's your business model? What customers do, do you want? But if you want kind of a, a quick answer, I would, uh, yeah, Brazil, uh, Colombia, uh, Ethiopia, Kenya, 
and I don't know, Guatemala, something like that. But that now I'm just kind of <laughs> brainstorming here, but I would need to know a bit more about your business plans. And yeah. um, then the last one is about the flavor study. Do you test, verify that the brewing method doesn't influence the flavor? Um, yeah, we did uh, two, uh, two French presses per sample and mixed it. Uh, and and it, it's French press so uh, to avoid any cup uh, cup differences. So if you cup sometimes and you just add uh, uh, coffee in cups and pour water, there can be a lot of variation. So that's why we take uh, one and a half liters of French presses and mix them. So this way we we uh, we uh, even out any uh, random uh, things going on. And, and, and anyway, uh, we've done eight individual sensory evaluation of roast profile modulation. Uh, so eight, eight separate projects. And then we have merged all those into one big database. So we had 18,500 data points, which is eight 18,500 times somebody in a scientific setup has scored the intensity of a descriptor of a cup. So we have so many repetitions that 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 it everything, all these kind of things are evened out. Perfect. Thanks for sharing. So last question from my side, if people want to know more about you, you shared the QR code, but beside of that, um, where can they find more information about you? I, I would go to the podcast, three hours of uh, free education. That's definitely um, the best place. And if you uh, go to our website as well, you will, you will see uh, everything we do coffeemind.com perfect oh i just wanted to close but there came in a question that i want to ask you that's a beautiful one so how do you drink your coffee oh depends on where uh, i am at home with my wife it's cappuccino in the morning and uh, at the office it's a filter most often perfect hey morton Thanks a lot. Um, beside of all the questions, we had a lot of thank yous, a lot of uh, people that are really happy with the session and say thanks uh, to all the information that you shared and also from my side. And besides of this um, webinar that you did, you were also sharing a lot of information on podcasts and blogs and studies and YouTube. So thanks for all the work you are doing. Thanks for coming to this webinar. It was really great to have you and, and I and... Uh, all of the participants learned a lot today. Thank you great. very much. It's my great pleasure. Thank you so much for organizing this. Thanks a lot. I hope this video was helpful for you. If you want to know more about coffee roasting, go to either Morton's website, Coffee Mind, where you find a lot of online courses and resources um, to learn about roasting, or go to our website, roasttravels.com, where you find a lot of equipment, roasting machines, green coffee, but then also books and information about roasting. And if you have any more questions, then always come back to me. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you.